Well, it's the 30th of December, 31st of December tomorrow, New Year's Eve. Kind of thought, well, I'd take the opportunity really to, this afternoon, consider this our New Year evening. The opportunity for us to think back over this past year and to perhaps think about uh, where we are in our Christian faith, where we are in our understanding of the Bible, all of those kind of things, and perhaps to help us to be better equipped for this coming year. Really, that's what we're looking at this afternoon. And I think the passage that we've read this afternoon, which in lots of ways is a continuation of the Christmas story, is packed with potential for us to think about this coming year. This past year has been an unrepeatable year, really, hasn't it? It's been quite incredible year. Uh, particularly if you're a, a sports enthusiast, this year has been phenomenal. The Olympics, if you're a royal kind of fan, the Diamond Jubilee, the whole of the year for this country has been quite remarkable, isn't it? But when all's said and done, here we are, the 30th of December 2012, it seems like to me, two minutes ago, that we were saying it's the 30th of December 2011, looking forward to what we saw as a really exciting new year. It has just flown by. It has passed by for me so quickly. I know some of you might think, well, that's because you're so old. That's kind of true, I guess. Um, But it will catch you up, you will get there, you will find that years go a lot quicker. They definitely go quicker uh, after 40. I've been told they go quicker after 50, but I don't know. Uh, uh, I, I guess on a personal level though, the reality is that years do two things. Firstly, they create a punctuation for us in our lives, don't we? It says something about us as human beings, that we live within time. We are very conscious that we live within time and we punctuate that time. We find that we create ways to punctuate our existence. The Bible that we've got in front of us, if you've got a Bible on your phone or or a a Bible in in print in front of you, you've got one at home, what you'll find is that the, the Bible is written in books but then it's broken up in at two levels. After the books, it's broken up into chapters, and then it's broken up into verses. It wasn't originally uh, written like that. The Bible was written as continuous letters, continuous gospels, or continuous prophecies. It wasn't broken up. We break up the writing. It's a little indication of how we handle things. We break up life as well, don't we? We break it up into years. We break it up into months. We break it up into weeks. All of that reminds us that we are finite beings. There is a beginning and there is an end to our existence. And within those chunks of time, within the years, within the months, within the weeks, we can consider and reflect and look back how has that chunk of time been. Or we can consider and and wonder what is the next chunk of time going to be like. Two things there. We can look back and it can, be, it can be a positive thought, can't it? We can look back and say, uh, this past year has been good. Or we can say, this past year has been quite difficult. It's been positive or negative. We can say that it's been an unrepeatable year in a good way or an unrepeatable year, we hope, in a bad way. 
When we look forward, we wonder what the year is going to bring. What will it be? I think that that challenges every one of us to think about how we live our lives. One of the things that the Bible wants us to see, encourages us again and again and again to see, is that we live our lives in one of two ways. We live our lives either very conscious that we live in the, in the sight, in the awareness of the God who made us. So we can live very conscious of that. Now, even within that, there are two ways to live. We can live very conscious of that, living knowing that we live in the face of God who made us. And we can live rebelliously against that, or we can live embracing that idea, or we can live as though that God doesn't exist. So really, there's two ways. This little section that we've got really captures those two ways of living, the positive and the negative. And really, as we start 2013, the challenge, therefore, in the light of that, is inevitably, how are we going to enter into 2013? Are we going to enter into 2013 conscious that we are living, very clear that we are living in the face before God? Or are we going to enter into 2013 living as though God doesn't exist? I think the fact that we punctuate our lives gives gives us opportunity to challenge ourselves, to question ourselves. I am on the brink, you are on the brink of a new year. Now, we hear all of the New Year resolutions and all of that kind of thing. It's the time to, to have shares in, in gyms uh, and to, to sell them around about March. Uh, actually, that's the wrong way around, isn't it? Um, if you sell them in March, you've lost money. Keep hold of them until next year. Uh, it's, the time to, it's the time to be thinking about those kind of things of life. But I want us to think, how, how am I going to live this year this coming year, in the face of the God who created us? Am I going to live conscious of that, living, embracing that, or am I going to live either aware of it and rejecting it or not aware of it and rejecting it? Now, this passage that we're looking at gives us the opportunity to see both. Here we have uh, the continuation of the Christmas story. Uh, We were looking at it last week. We saw how um, the wise men had come to, um, to uh, Bethlehem up to two years after Jesus had been born. And we see that uh, they, they meet uh, the family of Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, or the toddler Jesus by this point. This is the continuation. But if we just take a step back, I want to look at it this afternoon and specifically say, let's look at this in relation to Joseph. Joseph himself the father. Joseph has gone through an extraordinary period of time. The past few years for Joseph have been amazing. He's betrothed to Mary to get married. He finds that she's having a baby and then circumstances move them from Galilee all the way down to Bethlehem. They move house. I don't think he'd planned that There's no indication that they were planning to that. The situation demanded that they make a move, and they find themselves in Bethlehem. Then they have this remarkable visit from these strangers from the east, and then he finds, as we see here, 
that there is a, a de- again for Joseph, second occasion, a divine intervention, a message, messenger from God who comes to him and speaks to him and says, you need to do something. You need to move. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Two occasions in the past couple of years where Joseph has been completely uprooted and moved. First was because uh, the emperor of the, uh, the Roman emperor told everybody to move. The second time is because God told him to move. Two occasions where he's been completely uprooted. This little family have been thrown from pillar to post, really. I would guess every implication is that they've managed to stabilize. They've been in Bethlehem for a couple of years. They've, They've obviously settled. And then they find themselves completely moved, completely outside of any expectation that they would have. They never would have dreamt that they would be living in Egypt. And yet that is exactly where they get moved to. Do you see how it works? They get moved to Egypt by God. They weren't planning it, but that's where they end up. Moved to Egypt, take the mother and the child, because Herod is looking to kill all of the children. So he does that, middle of the night. I mean, that, this, <laughs> this is extreme, isn't it? This is... Um, this isn't, we, this isn't making a decision as you would normally make as a family. A, a normal decision to move house, to leave, uh, probably takes a lot longer these days even than past centuries. But it would be a considered decision. We'd talk about it, we'd think about it, we'd make some plans. Joseph gets the message and is moved within hours. They're on the road within hours. That's the level of uprooting and destabilizing that takes place in this little family. They're gone in the night. They get the message and they've gone. They're on the road moving out to Egypt. What we see is that um, the story unfolds. They move to Egypt. They stay in Egypt for a period of time. And then later on, they get another, he gets another message to say it's okay Herod is now dead. You can move back to the land where you originally came from. So another period of time goes and they move back. What we find is in verse 22, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So what we've got, and therefore he goes to Galilee. So if we had our map, which uh, we had last week, we see that he lived in, up in the north. They moved down to the south. They move out to Egypt. I'll do it this way. They move out to Egypt. Uh, they stay in Egypt. Uh, and then they move back, planning to come back here towards the south, find that Archelaus, the son of Herod, is now ruling. So they move up to the north to stay out the way. In fact, they receive a message to do that. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So there's the little picture. 
it's over a period of time, it's over a number of years, we see that going on for this family. But what does that have to say to us today? How can we apply that to our lives? What are the implications of what we see? I think there are three things, and this is why this is recorded in the book of Matthew. Can I give you a little tip? Whenever you're reading the Bible, always stop and think, why is the writer recorded this? John makes it really clear. At the end of the Gospel of John, he says, there are many, many, many other things that Jesus did, but these are the things that I've recorded. Now, John says that. He's the longest of the uh, Gospels, and therefore all of the others could have said it. They have selected certain things to say. So ask yourself, why why has he included this bit? Why has he written it out in this way? I think we can see very, very clearly, and it has massive implications for us, why he's written this number of years into this relatively short narrative, and it's this. Because within these three events, these moves around the place, it is the fulfillment of three promises from the Old Testament. That's what's going on. That's why it's written the way it is. We see in verse 15, we see, And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. We find that in Hosea chapter 11. So in other words, stepping stone number one, they end up in Egypt so that the prophecy can be fulfilled I called him out of Egypt. How could Jesus, a Jew, be the fulfillment of the prophecy of Hosea? By God making sure that Jesus ends up in Egypt so that he can be called out of Egypt. Now, Hosea was written hundreds and hundreds of years before these events. And yet, Jesus fulfills that prophecy in Hosea. The second fulfillment, verse 18, we see a direct quote from Jeremiah, a voice is heard in Rama, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. The fulfillment of what is said in Jeremiah is that there is going to be weeping, a, a kind of weeping which cannot be pacified, cannot be resolved, a desperate weeping, a weeping which, as the prophet says, refusing to be comforted because the children are no more. In other words, there is a prophecy in Jeremiah, again hundreds of years ago, to say that there is going to be an astoundingly awful, desperate painful occurrence, children being killed, which is the fulfillment that we see here where Herod sends his soldiers in to kill the children. The third fulfillment we find right at the end of our reading where we see this, 
so he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, that was a little bit different, that one, because we can't go and we, can, we can't pinpoint specific... Pro- See the other ones he says where the prophet says? In this one, he says the prophets. Now, what's coming across there is there is a general idea. There is a flavor that comes through. And Nazarene in the Old Testament was two things, actually. A Nazarene was one who was set aside and holy which is what Jesus was. Uh, and what had become clear is that the Nazar- a Nazarene had also been considered as somebody who was, if you like, contemptible. Somebody who would be kind of a, an object of contempt. It was, if you like, it was slang for somebody who would be poorly thought of. And that is exactly what Jesus fulfilled. He was both of those Set aside and holy and poorly thought of. Jeremiah, sorry, Isaiah chapter 3, we see that specifically that he will be despised. He will be thought ill of. And that's what we see. Now, if we take those three things, if we take those and we say, right, okay, out of Egypt, we see weeping in Rama and we see that he's going to be a Nazarene. Three things that, if you like, punctuate this little story. What we find is that that is the reason behind the narrative. That's why it's being said. In other words, all of these events tell us what? God is in control. God is behind it. Now, as you and I enter into this next year... I would suggest that each one of these three events have the potential to help us and to equip us as we enter into this coming year under the big umbrella, God is in control. First one we see is this, out of Egypt, I called him. So in other words, for Jesus to fulfill that prophecy, he had to end up in Egypt to come out again. Do you ever wonder what's going on in your... Do you, do you feel as though life is just out of control? You don't know what's going to happen next. You, you don't know why, perhaps. I don't know. You might be thinking, I don't know why I'm living in West Yorkshire. As somebody from the other side of the Pennines, that's a dangerous thing to say. You might say, I don't know what... How did I end up here? I look back over life and I find myself here. I never expected to be here. Never thought that I would be here. You might actually be saying, do you know what? I never even expected to be in church. What's going on? How has my life ended up in this particular situation? How is it that I've ended up here? How is it that I've ended up living in this community? How is it that I've ended up walking through these doors? How is it that I've ended up in this family situation? Because I tell you what, I had never planned it. Do you think Joseph could say that? Do you think Joseph could say, I never planned to go in Egypt? Never planned to be living in Egypt. And yet what we see in the way that it is written is comforting 
for us to know that the reason that he's in Egypt is because God wanted him there. And the thing that he had to do was be faithful to what God was indicating and shaping his life to be. He didn't have any choice from moving from Nazareth down to, from Galilee down to uh, Bethlehem because Caesar said. Caesar said. So that was situational. He didn't hear necessarily the voice of God saying that. He just had to do it because his situation demanded it. And then he had another move, which was clearly God's hand in it. You think, do you ever get that kind of, how do, I, how do I deal with this guidance thing? How do I know when God is guiding me? What should I be doing? How, how do I know what God wants me to do? Take a leaf out of Joseph's book. Because what was underneath it all was not trying to work out whether I should do this, whether I should do that. It was about being faithful. It was about doing day to day the things that he knew he had to do as a husband and a father and allowing in certain situations for God to give him clear guidance and allowing in other situations for the situation itself to give him clear guidance. And we kind of get so wrapped up with what should I do at this level that we forget the day-to-day level. Just live it out. Make a decision. 2013 is the year where I'm going to start living it out day-to-day. The situations that I find myself in, the way life unfolds, the way God shapes my destiny in ways that I did not expect, My responsibility is to live a life which is being obedient and faithful to him in the day-to-day. And to be confident of that. That's what Joseph gives us an indication to do. I'm going to just do that day-to-day. I'm not going to try to analyze, should I go to Egypt? Is that a voice from God? And what about if I do go to Egypt? Whereabouts in Egypt should I go? It doesn't tell us. Did he go to Ramesses? Did he go to somewhere else in Egypt? Doesn't just move to Egypt, you know? Didn't give him the address. Just move there. Well, how do I know where to go in Egypt? Allow the situation to unfold. But you be faithful today. I think as we enter a new year, if we could learn to do that, To just live day to day, faithful to God. As Jesus said, why worry about the future? The future has got its concerns of its own. Your responsibility is to live today. Allow the future to take care of itself. Clearly what Jesus said. That sounds like a peaceful way to live. But it also sounds like a way that is living, trusting in God. (laughs) Doesn't it? Because our tendency is to say, I need to have it all mapped out. (laughs) Because if I don't have it mapped out, I don't know where I'm headed. God knows where it's mapped out. You just live today. That doesn't mean that we abandon and become kind of like a hippie community (laughs) that doesn't worry about anything. Of course not. 
We just, we do basic stuff and we, we make the decisions that we make. We see it with Paul. He tried to move in certain situations. He allowed the door to be closed. He allowed the door to open. He does all of these things and he allows God to shape his days. It's the first thing that we say. Second thing I think we can see. So out of Egypt gives us a, a, a kind of an indication of how we could live and allow God to guide us. The second one, and this is a massive issue. In fact, as you read this story, this might have been a problem to you. As you read it, you might have said, well, that sounds to me, when I see that second little indication that there is going to be weeping in Rama and that there is going to be the slaughtering of children... And that is to fu- so that the prophecy can be fulfilled. That sounds like God is saying that is a way that it's going to be fulfilled. Therefore, God's behind that slaying. Nothing could be further from the truth. Do you remember right at the beginning I said this little section, I think, gives us a, a way of understanding how we live our life. We can either live embracing obedience to the presence of Jesus, or we can live rebelling and fighting against it. Herod lived rebelling against the presence of Jesus. Let's make sure that we keep that in mind. Herod the king, the leader of God's people, the, people, the man who was surrounded by scribes, church leaders, or temple leaders. He was, he was kind of immersed in all of the Old Testament promises. He had all of that to hand. He even ex, ex, asked his scribes to tell him where the promised one was coming from. And they said Bethlehem. And he made the decision to try to kill the presence of God. He made the decision to slay the Messiah. He made the decision to rebel against the presence of Jesus. And yet, even though he was living, rebelling against the presence of Jesus, at the very same time, he was fulfilling exactly the prophecies that God had made hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't it remarkable that God can work and can, can be behind the situation even though there is direct opposition, even though the worst situations are unfolding, even though there is hatred and animosity towards Jesus, and yet behind that, it does not distract from God's plan. I don't know what all of your situations are, but in a room this size, with a gathering of people this size, I am convinced that some of us will be looking forward to the next years, next months rather, with a degree of fear. Because there is opposition and there are fearful things on the horizon. Things of profound opposition towards our faith, 
seeing on the horizon the possibility of real hatred towards the message that we have written in our hearts. You say, well, the way that unfolds, the way that unfolds in my life, whether that is by what people are doing or whether that is because of situations that are unfolding, the mess of the world that we live in, you know, the way that life is working its way out is filled with fear. I don't think Joseph left and heard about, as he would inevitably hear about, the slaughter and thought, phew, glad I got away from that. I would say that Joseph would have been profoundly moved. He would have been heartbroken. Okay, because God had intervened, because God had worked in a remarkable way and taken them out of the situation, it doesn't detract from the reality of the opposition. And yet God was working behind the scenes in every situation. As we face this coming year, I think that that is one of the most important things for us to take a hold of and to store away in our minds, in our thinking, to absolutely be sure in our knowledge that no matter what, no matter what the opposition, if we are living, trusting and believing in Jesus Christ and the God of the Bible, even the worst of things are not knocking off course the plans of God for our lives. Now that is really hard because sometimes we look at the events in our life and we think this cannot possibly be right. It can't be that this is right. We can't see. We very often don't see the beauty of the final picture. But the reality is that we have a God who is behind every situation and we have a God who is working out the very worst to be the very best. Now, I don't know how that works out in some situations and I would suggest that we can get to the end of life in some situations and we might never understand but you and I can never contain the number of connections that might make one situation impact on another, impact on another, impact on another, that somehow intervenes in our lives for the good of ourselves and therefore the good of the whole of God's people. That is the confidence that we have to have. Otherwise, we look at a slaughter in Rama and we think, God, you've got no power. You've got no power. You couldn't stop it. But we can say, God, I understand that you are willing to allow the hostile hatred of human beings to run their course, and yet I have a confidence that behind the scenes, you are in control. That's what this says. As we enter 2013... We need to hold on to that. We need to hold on to that. The final one. Despised. 
he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. If you were a first century Jewish reader, you read that sentence, he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, you would think, are you kidding? Really? That, doesn't, that, that is so Bible for us, isn't it? We, just, we read it and we think, oh yes, Jesus came from Nazareth. The reality is, you would read it and you think, and I'm not going to use any places because I'm going to get myself into massive trouble. You'd say, you're kidding, he lived there? You really? No, none of you will know it, so I'll say it. If I was, when I was growing up, I lived, in a, I lived on the Wirral, lived in Easton, and uh, you know, it's kind of like saying he lived on the Mill Park Estate. You're kidding. Really? Jesus came from that place? Later on, we find that that is exactly the reaction that Nathaniel has when Philip speaks to him about Jesus. He says, I've, I've found the promised one. Philip says to him, he's come, he's arrived, you need to come and speak to him. He's come from Nazareth. Uh, And Nathaniel's response is, Nazareth? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding me? How can that help us? I, I think it can help in this way as we enter 2013. When we think about the things that we hold on to, as beautiful truths, things that are important, things that are valued, and the world that we live in looks on and thinks that's just trash. It's just rubbish. It's just pathetic. When we think about the idea of the message of the gospel just being completely disregarded, We are not in a different place to where Jesus was. In fact, Jesus came and he he came from the worst of the worst. The the kind of the, the pits. And he said, I will come from there. I will place myself in that situation. So the reality is that none of you can feel that I am ever superior to you. None of you can ever feel that I am superior to you. That is at least what it says. And secondly, it says, you must expect that my message is going to seem, it's going to be disregarded. It's going to be trampled in the muck. It's going to be considered as pathetic and insignificant and worthless and all of those kind of things. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's lasted 2,000 years. It's faced immediate persecution in the first few hundred years. It's been attacked. It's been abused. It's been hated throughout the world. The message of the gospel has been seen as that that comes from Nazareth repeatedly again and again and again and again. It's seen as useless And yet it continues. And it has not stopped. And it is still changing lives. 
And it is still seen that something that seems worthless is valued and is loved and changes human beings at a profound, deep level. You might be sat here thinking, just coming to terms with this message of the Bible. The moment, I think it's a bit off the page, to be honest. It's a bit, it's a bit ridiculous. It's a bit out there. It's a bit old-fashioned. It's a bit out of date. However you might think. The reality is, that is just like saying it comes from Nazareth. It's just meaningless, worthless. And yet Jesus, who came from Nazareth, has changed the world like nobody else. Not because of some clever manipulation, but because of what we see here. Because if Jesus is the fulfillment of promises down through the centuries, made over hundreds of years, he is not just any other human being, is he? He can't be. That's the claim that this little section is making. The uniqueness of Jesus, the person that he is, the presence of God in this world, even though he looks worthless, is of incomparable value, even though he comes from Nazareth. It didn't matter to him, and so it shouldn't matter to us. There's a whole load of talk around at the moment about all of the things that are being dismantled in terms of our past and our heritage and all of the things that we hold. You know what? Don't worry about it. This tells us that God's working behind the scenes, however it works out. He's got his hand on it. We've not been forgotten. We've not been left behind. We've not lost something. God is behind it. God is shaping, protecting, keeping his people. Those are the kind of things I think as we enter into 2013, if we can hold on to those, if we can say, I'll be guided by just living day to day. I'll be holding on even though this message is hated. And I'll see that God is behind and keeping a hold of me. We will be transformed.